2: You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio
1: Show. Good evening. Thank you for tuning in to the Gospel Light Radio Show. This radio show is being broadcast from Stevie B's Media Productions at the Carolina Studio in the great state of North Carolina. Your host this evening is Stevie R. Butler from the state of North Carolina with your co-host Tim Bench from the state of Texas, Glenn McMillian from the state of Texas, Courtney Carruthers from the state of Illinois. Steve Coro from the state of Illinois, Dr. Frank Washington from the state of Florida, Clay Phillips from the state of Georgia, Brian Christian Coleman from the state of New Jersey, and Robert Lee Johnson from the state of Florida. We're grateful that you're tuned into our radio broadcast this evening. This radio show is brought to you by loving and faithful members of the Churches of Christ. We'd ask you to take out your Bibles and study along with us we have a very exciting show planned for your spiritual enlightenment and your edification if you'd like to contact us while we're on the air this evening just give me a call to the live show at seven one three nine five five zero five zero eight if you have any questions or comments for any of my co-hosts on this broadcast you can send your emails to my new email address butlersteve1009 at yahoo.com or you can give me a call at stevie b's media Productions. Steve Media Productions at 910-491-6405. Now, again, this program is brought to you by members of the Churches of Christ. And if you need any assistance in locating the congregation in your area, please feel free to contact us. Now, folks, get out your Bibles and stand along with us here on the Gospel Live radio show. You're
2: listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show.
1: Before we go into our program for this evening, I would ask you to bow with me in a word of prayer that we may thank God for this opportunity. Our most kind, gracious, loving, heavenly Father, the Father, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for allowing us to go through the various activities of the day and placing it on our hearts that we are on this broadcast, and we are preparing now to present a portion of your holy and divine word. Father, we pray that you will be with my co-host on the show this evening, Brian Christian Coleman, as well as Steve Kortle, as they break unto us the bread of life. And also my co-host Tim Bench, as he answers the questions that are on the hearts of so many. We pray that you will bless them and their families that support their efforts to continue to sow the seed of the kingdom. Father, we pray that you will bless our listeners this evening who are tuning in to this radio broadcast via Blog Talk Radio, as well as through social media. We pray that they may listen well and that their hearts may be pricked as they consider their eternal stance before you and their soul salvation. And it will cause them to ask the question, What must I do to be saved? Father, we thank you so much for sending your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, to die such a cruel death on Calvary's cross we recognize that without such a sacrifice, we will not have a hope of eternal life. For even now, we ask that you'll forgive us for the transgressions of our own heart. We know our flesh is weak, and we often fall short of your will. For we pray that you'll continue to bless us and keep us and love us all the days of our lives. And if we have been faithful until death, for we pray that you'll save us. For it's in Christ's name we do ask it all.
2: Amen. You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to the broadcast. Our speakers for this evening in the first segment, my co-host Brian Christian Coleman. He serves with the Newark Church of Christ there in Newark, New Jersey. He'll be making his proclamation of the Gospel of Christ. And in the second segment, I have a question from my shout-out platform on social media, Facebook, that I'll be posing to my co-host Tim Bench. He serves with the O'Ham Lane Church of Christ there in Abilene, Texas. And to close out the show, my co-host Steve Cordle, he serves as evangelist for the East Park Church of Christ there in Danville, Illinois. So open up your Bibles and open your minds and let's have a great show after the break. This one will be that of my co-host, Brian Christian Coleman. Enjoy the show. <laughs>
3: Send the light, send the light, yeah, yeah,
4: yeah, send the light. There's a call coming ringing on the rest, straight away. Send the light, come on and send send the light. There are souls to rescue, there are souls to save. Send the light.
3: But the of gospel of Let it shine
2: listening to the gospel light radio show give your attention to the proclamation of the gospel of jesus christ
1: now my co-host steve cordo and his subject when god says no
5: Well, thank you, Stevie, for the opportunity to be here and share a lesson on the uh, Gospel Light program, and welcome to everybody who's uh, joining in uh, wherever you are in the world. We're glad to have you, and if you have a Bible, if you'll turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that's where we'll be spending most of our time on this lesson, and this lesson I'm doing this evening is actually a uh, part of a series that I'm doing on prayer, And this particular lesson came about because of a meme that I saw on Facebook a a few uh, weeks back. And the meme is a picture of several people at a gravesite service. And there's a person there, looks like he's probably a Roman Catholic or an Anglican, some kind of a priest like that. He's got the robes on and that sort of thing. And the caption says, We are gathered here today because your prayers didn't work. Now, obviously, this was posted by an atheist. And I made a post uh, on the meme saying, how do you know? Sometimes we pray for someone to pass peacefully so their suffering is at an end. And even if you pray for someone to be healed, the answer might be no. There's no such thing as an unanswered prayer. Now, that brought a bunch of uh, of, uh, answers back from atheists saying that I was... um, Uh, trying to rationalize and that um, uh, that, that I was being illogical and unreasonable and all this sort of thing now I'll concede the point we all like to get yes answers to our prayers and when we don't get the answer we're looking for we typically will say well our prayers weren't answered or when we get a yes we'll say well yeah our prayers were answered that was an answer to prayer but is that idea correct is that meme correct Was Garth Brooks right in the early 1990s? Some of you who are country music fans will, and if you're old enough, you'll remember the song Garth Brooks did about 1990, I think it was, or 89, somewhere in there, called Unanswered Prayers. And the song is about a man that goes to his hometown football game with his wife, and he runs into his old high school flame. And he makes the introductions, and they go on their way to watch the game, and he starts thinking about the past. And he says that she was the one that I'd wanted for all times. And each night I'd spend praying that God would make her mine. And if he would only grant me this wish that I wished back then, I'd never ask for anything again. Does that sound familiar? Don't we... Ask God for uh, say things to to our, to our parents when we were kids. Hey, Dad or Mom, if you'll buy me this bike, I'll never ask for anything again. Or maybe your kids now are doing that. And then sometimes don't we do that with God? God, if you'll just grant me this or that, uh, I'll never ask for anything again. I won't bother you. But getting back to the song, he says the chorus says sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs, just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care because some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. But is that correct? Is there any such a thing as an unanswered prayer? You might have heard the story of the woman who was uh, just leaving the doctor's office. She had to go to Walmart to get a prescription. And she had to get home, fix supper for her family, and then get to Wednesday night Bible study. And as she's turning into the Walmart parking lot, a cloud burst comes up, and it's just pouring rain. And she's going up and down the aisles trying to find a parking spot that is close to the door so she doesn't get soaked, and, and she can't find one, so she starts praying, Lord, could you please help me find a parking spot? You know the day I've had, you know it's far from over, could you please help me out and as she turns down this one aisle she sees some backup lights and the car starts backing out and it's a spot right it's the first one past the handicap slots and it's a straight shot once she gets out of the car right into the door uh, uh doorway of Walmart and so she, as she's praying the prayer for the parking spot and turns down the aisle and sees it she just stops her prayer and says oh never mind Lord uh, something's opened up And sometimes I've known people who, they can't find their car keys. And they're tearing the house apart and they finally stop and they pray that God will help them find their car keys and they look over and there they are sitting on a shelf where they left them. And they grab the car keys and they say, What an awesome God, He really helped me find my car keys Uh, and, and He helped me find that parking spot. But now let's shift gears a little bit and look at a loved one who's got cancer or some other terminal or chronic illness. We pray passionate prayers. We, we thank God for what he's going to do. No, we pray, we know you're going to heal this person, God, but then nothing happens. Now, why in the world do you think uh, God <clears throat> would do something seemingly so insignificant as maybe helping you find a parking spot or find your keys, but we get nothing when we're praying for someone to get healed? Someone in the hospital with cancer Someone uh, with a chronic uh, uh, condition like uh, uh, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or somebody who's sitting at home crippled up by arthritis or in a nursing home with arthritis. We have all can think of versions of, this, of these stories in our lives where we got something maybe not all that significant, but then the big stuff we've asked God for, we just seem like we're not getting any. We're hearing crickets. Well, today I want us to look at a time when God said No. And there are times when he doesn't give us what we want. And sometimes we might even think God is uncooperative. But times when we believe God could do something, and then he doesn't. And I believe this will help us better understand what God's doing and hopefully help us learn to trust him. See, in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus was just about to go to the cross And Matthew records that Jesus went a little further and fell down on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, it is not as I will it, but as you will it. In other words, he's saying, Not my will, God, but your will be done. Now, Jesus made a prayer. Did he get a yes answer to his prayer? Well, obviously he didn't. I'm going to say more about that later. I want us to concentrate mainly on the life of Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is where we're going to be looking here in a minute familiar passage to us and we're going to see here that prayer is not about getting our way it's about surrendering to the will of God remember Jesus prayed Father if there's any way that you could remove this I'm paraphrasing but if there's any way you could remove this cup from me please do it but anyway God it's not my will but it's your will to be done and in the sermon on the mount Jesus taught us to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven now when we ask God again and again but ultimately we are called to surrender our will to God and if there's anybody who would deserve a yes answer who could just walk up to the throne and say hey God here's what I want and get it it would have been the apostle Paul sure he started out as someone persecuting Christians but after he had that encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus And he went on in to to Damascus and and met Ananias and was baptized into Christ and and started out on his ministry. He went on all these mission trips. He uh, he healed people. He had visions. He risked his life. He was uh, beaten and whipped. He was imprisoned. He even got bit by a poisonous snake after he got shipwrecked. And what was his reward? Did God say, hey, Paul, you've done all this, so I'm going to make sure you, you have a nice, comfy retirement? with a nice little villa there on the Mediterranean where the climate is nice and mild year-round because, hey, that's how good a God I am. Is that what God said or did? Well, no, it's not. And look at the life of Paul. Paul wrote half the New Testament, at least 12 of the, of the books, maybe 13, if, if depending on who wrote Hebrews. We're not sure who wrote Hebrews. But as we see in the life of Paul and as we see with Jesus, there are times that God says no. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7, Paul says, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, Most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I will take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Notice, first of all, this was what we would call trouble with a purpose. Look at verse 7. He says, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. A messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So there's the reason for all of this. See, in other words, Satan brought something into Paul's life, but God not only allowed it, but God is now going to use this. Remember, prayer isn't about just getting our way. It's about surrendering to the will of God. It's saying, okay, God, even though I really wish you would do this or do that, I'm choosing to trust you. God, I'm really praying and hoping you will take this thorn away from me, but I'm trusting you. I'm going to choose to keep my trust in you. And this word that is translated buffet or to torment, depending on your translation, this is a word that is that tells us Paul is dealing with something pretty tough. See, the Greek means to hit hard with the knuckles, uh, to make the blow sting and to crush. It's the idea of striking with something sharp and painful and sticking deeply into the flesh so that it remains there. And this is how the Romans would kill a person, by running a stake through their body in battle or anything like that. And that's the word they would use to describe it. And it was agonizing. And we really don't know anything about the thorn that Paul had in his flesh, but we know that this uh, whatever it was, it was agonizing to him. Now, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. A man's heart has many plans. We we have all kinds of methods of carrying out our plans. And we constantly invent new ways to carry out plans and to do things. But we have to remember it is God's will that will stand. It is God's counsel that is going to stand when all is said and done. And Paul needed a thorn to keep him ever mindful of this, to remind him that he is no better than any other man, and that he is totally dependent on God. That's why Paul had this. Uh, We don't. uh, We again, we don't know what it was. Whatever it was, Paul uh, had to have it in order. We would say to keep him grounded. There was a danger in all of the revelations that Paul had made to him. There was a danger in all the work that he did that he could get too big of an ego that he could think of himself as being really something and put himself on a pedestal. So God put this thorn in his life, which then kind of begs the question, who's in charge? See, because prayer reminds us that we are not in control. It keeps us close to the one who is. We like to say, well, hey, I'm the captain of my ship. But prayer reminds me I can't be in control in all situations. I can go out and get in my car and take a road trip. I've got my car under control as I'm going down the road, but guess what? I can't control the cars coming the other way or the car behind me. I can't control what those drivers do. I can't stop them from crossing the line and hitting me head-on or rear-ending me. There is just a lot in this world we do not control, and we, that's where faith comes in. And everybody has faith, even an atheist has faith, they don't like to call it that. They'll call it something else. But any plans that we have for the future, we are making those plans in faith. Uh, right now, if you're planning Christmas uh, travel to go see Grandma or whatever, you're, you're doing that. That's faith. You're having faith that, that the, the COVID is not going to uh, suddenly blow up and stop us from traveling. You're having faith that there'll be uh, a road that you can take to get to Grandma's or an airplane or whatever it is. That's all faith. Uh, I had an atheist once say, well, that's not faith, that's just a reasonable expectation. Okay, fine, tomato, tomato, call it what you will. But it is faith when you get right down to it. And until it happens, it's not fact. And we see that Paul acknowledged that only God could remove this thorn, whatever it was. So Paul said he prayed three times. He pleaded. And this is a word that is used about 109 or 10 times in the New Testament. And this is the only time that it is used in the verb form where Paul pleaded. Uh, uh, this is a petitionary prayer. He, is, he really wants this. He seems to want to convey an earnest intensity about this petition that he's making to get this thorn removed because it seems like he thinks it was really a distraction for him. And only after the third time did he begin to realize the purpose of the, that the Lord had in allowing this thorn in the flesh. It was, we might say, it was help to help Paul keep his head screwed on straight or keep his feet planted on the ground. It was to keep his head from expanding and getting a really big ego. Lots of ways we could look at it. The point is, it was to keep Paul humble. Paul says, I did this three times. Uh, so what, he got up on Monday and prayed Monday, then Tuesday and Wednesday three times and that was it? Well, no. It means that Paul prayed three significant seasons in his life in a very intentional and focused prayer, asking for this thorn to be removed, pleading, begging with God. And maybe you're there in your life right now. You're pleading with God to save your marriage or to help you find a job or to take away a physical pain that you've got. Whatever it is, that's what Paul is doing now very seriously going to God in prayer but he's also saying God I trust you I'm seeking you and I'm going to lay this, put this in your hands and I'm going to trust you to come up with what's best and that's kind of what Jesus did he accepted the cross through fervent prayer and Paul is doing that now he's accepting this or resigning himself to submit to God's will about whatever his weakness or his thorn was And eventually he just took it and stopped making the request, is is my reading of this. See, and time comes in our lives when we must learn to just accept what is inescapable and then look for what God is trying to say to us through it or what God is trying to do for us through it. Sometimes we find we are mistaken about what we think is best for us. You know, going back to that Garth Brooks song, how many of us maybe were dating someone in high school or college and thought, whoa, this person is it this woman, this man is who I want to spend my life with, and then you know it goes south, it breaks up, and you go on your way in 10 or 20 or however many years later, you look back and say, Oh, the Lord really knew what he was doing. He got me out of what would be a bad situation. Second Corinthians 12.9, we see that Paul, though, is asking God to remove this for a couple of reasons. Number one, this is bothering Paul. It's pricking him. It's bothering him. Whatever this thorn is, he really wants relief from it. Because also it's distracting him from his labor. It's keeping him from being able to focus on his work. And it may also appear, it's also making him to appear weak or sickly. And nobody wants to appear weak. Nobody wants to appear to be sick or to be having the kinds of problems that Paul is describing here. And so he prays three times for it to be removed. Some think this is a parallel to the three-fold prayer Jesus made in Matthew 26 before he went to the cross. But we see whatever is going on, three, basically three reasons that God did not answer, or rather God did not answer him with a yes, that God did not remove the thorn. Number one, God wanted to guard against Paul being puffed up. Paul says, this was made basically to, to keep me humble. Second, God wants to reveal his power in Paul. And how can God reveal his power if Paul is all puffed up saying, hey, look what I did. I've written all these books and all these letters to people telling them about God and, and helping them to get their churches established. I've converted uh, uh, X number of people. I have planted churches. Well, yeah, I'm really something special. It would be kind of hard for God to reveal his power through Paul if that's what uh, if that was the attitude that Paul had And then finally, God wanted to teach Paul to live for Christ's sake. See, when Paul suffered some infirmity or a weakness, it gave him and Christ a chance to infuse power into Paul that he never would have had otherwise. And then we have to remember, prayer is not about getting it my way. Remember those old Burger King ads? All we ask is that you let us serve it your way. You know, come in here, get, ask for whatever you want on the burger. It's yours. You don't want lettuce, you don't want tomato, we'll take it off. You want extra ketchup, we'll do it. Whatever you want, it's it's up to you. It's your way. Well, that's not prayer. Prayer isn't just asking; it's trusting. Prayer isn't just about getting our way, but it is sometimes surrendering our will to God because god does not exist to serve us like somebody you might hire to do work around the house or a genie where you rub the, the 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 lamp and out pops a genie and grants you your three wishes or whatever it is that's not the way god works and when when we we look at we look at god and his answer to prayer remember he can see tomorrow and the next day we can't sometimes what we're asking for is not today might seem like it's in our best interest but in a day or so, and maybe it's not going to be. So we have to continually seek after God. Remember, we are here to serve God. Sometimes we think, if God doesn't do this or do that for me, uh, I'm, I'm out. Or God didn't, uh, uh, this is what we might say, God didn't answer my prayer when I asked for whatever. Well, when did we become God? Because when we get to thinking about telling God how to do His job, we're, we are trying to put ourselves in His place. God, you should have done this or that. That would have been best. Well, maybe I think God doing something would would have been the best thing. Maybe it wasn't. God knows because he's got a lot more knowledge and information than I have. And prayer is not just asking for what you want. It's trusting God who knows what's best. It's not always easy for us to admit that somebody else might know better than we do, is it? And then we also have to remember that we can develop a different perspective, which is exactly what Paul did. Look at verse 9, the last part of it especially. He said, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. So because God did not remove that thorn, Paul experienced Christ's power in ways he never could have imagined. His ministry was blessed. It was more powerful because he was able to demonstrate the power of Christ. And if you look at verse 10, he says, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, I am strong. Did you get that? I delight in infirmities or weaknesses. I delight in reproaches or insults. I delight in needs or hardships. I delight in persecutions. I delight in distresses. That's I think five things there that he says he delights in. Now, show of hands in the in the radio audience. Oh wait, this is radio, you can't do that. Can't can't see your hands raised up. But how many of us would delight in infirmities or in insults or needs? See, Paul I don't think would have chosen to go through that, but because he did, because God did not remove that thorn, he was able to experience the power because his ministry was more powerful because of what God didn't do. Because God didn't remove that thorn. So what if we changed our perspective? If instead we went from, oh, I hate this arthritis pain I've got. I can't stand that obnoxious boss I've got. Suppose it went from that to, I delight in this arthritis pain because it teaches me to trust in the presence of God. I delight in this bad job I have or this bad boss I have because it teaches me to trust in God. And then when someone says, hey, well, how do you make it through working for that guy? How do you make it through with this, uh, with this financial problem you've got or being out of work or whatever the situation is, you can say, well, that's the grace of God. I can delight in my job search right now because I've learned to depend on God in a way I would not have learned if I was fully and gainfully employed, or if I was fully uh, healthy. And so over time, his perspective changed. As he looks back, he sees why God let that thorn, in, thorn into his life. And it's true for us. You know, the great line that says, hindsight's always twenty-twenty. when we look back on life, we can see much more clearly We maybe can look back to that boyfriend or girlfriend we had in high school or college that we thought was just going to be Mr. Right or Miss Right. And when it broke up, we were devastated. But now looking back over the years, we can say, oh, wow, I'm glad that that relationship, I'm glad I didn't uh, uh, marry that person. I can even look back. There was a a, a, a church that we interviewed with. It was in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And we really liked it. They seemed to like us, but we never heard back from them after our interview. About a year, a year and a half after that interview, I saw they were looking for a preacher again, and I went ahead and sent them a resume and reminded them we'd already been there. And I then took a look at the numbers, uh, at, the, at the, uh, the, um, uh, all the information. The vitals, I guess you could say. When we were out there and interviewed, there were, if I'm remembering right, five elders in this congregation and about 120 or 30 members. A year, a year and a half later, there were no elders, and if I'm remembering right, around 60 members. Something happened. Don't know what, but something happened, and there was obviously some kind of a split. So I can look back and say, you know what? Yeah, I was disappointed at the time, but I'm glad I didn't get that position. We like to say that time heals all wounds, but the real healing comes because with God's presence and power available to us, we can, we can start on that healing now. We've all got things in our life that we don't like, situations we would like to change. Continue to pray about them. Continue to ask God. But remember, God's answer might be no, just like it was with Paul. No, Paul, I'm not taking this thorn away. You need this thorn to keep you humble. To keep you from getting exalted above measure. I don't know if that's your situation or not. But keep praying and keep looking. It may be down the road before you actually see why God allowed this particular thorn or this particular issue into your life. But keep praying about it. If you have any questions, if you, if you would like prayer, feel free to send a message. We'll, we'll pray for you or pray with you. And if there's any questions you have, feel free to contact us through social media. We'll be glad to answer them as best we can. And thank you, Stevie, for having me on the show this evening. That's my lesson. Thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time.
2: You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show.
4: Will you phone And will you accept Jesus. me,
3: Jesus?
4: As I kneel at your throne, dear Lord, and all of my brothers, he will, will all make, always criticize, and accuse, But yes, he will. But I know that my Jesus,
3: he will make me pray. Lord is strong to enough,
4: clean enough
3: To ahead. clean me up Or I'm in dorm again Please wash me free, free From the pain, pain Of all of my sins And Lord, and
4: Lord
3: please Use me
4: Cause I'm ready At oh,
3: my bidding
4: yeah, Lord Use
3: Sure,
4: God covered I see them
3: cry
4: And they each have a stone. Dear Lord, but you milk beside me, Jesus. And my fears are all gone. Praise God. Cause you give me peace that surpasses the mind mind. And I know that in Jesus Jesus' we come
3: Say, i Lord, and Lord, please use me. Cause I'm ready at thy bidding. Oh, use oh. Me. Lord, here am I. Say, please use me. Cause you're my God. God oh, I'm thankful for a God. Send me. Give me a chance
4: No more shame, no more doubt, no more guilt,
3: Lord, no. so I ask the Lord to you more to do.
4: book says that there's none righteous, no, not one. See, if you're honest with yourself, you'll admit that we've all needed a second chance. And it was only because of his grace and his mercy that we're here today. Because the Lord is long-suffering, not willing that anybody should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And see, repentance, that's because in repentance, that's where you learn to turn around. And God gives you a second chance. You turn from selfishness. turn towards godliness. You turn from anger. turn toward joy. You turn from hatred. turn towards love. My brother, my sister, God will give you a second chance. If you just try. Turn around Oh, Lord, my Lord Till you hear me Well, you've got to turn around, Turn around Turn around, turn around, turn around For your You've got to Put your head inside
3: Turn around Turn around, turn around Turn around For your For Oh, no,
2: You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show.
5: Is your congregation in need of lending for a building or expansion project? As your partner and advocate, Diversified Financial Network will take the time to understand your unique situation and develop a financing solution that meets your specific needs. It's an exciting time for your congregation and what you need is a company with expertise in church financing early in the process. Call us today at 1-866-513-6665 or visit us at
6: www.diversifiedfinancegroup.com.
1: These are the announcements for the events and activities in the Churches of Christ. If you'd like to have your events and activities announced on this broadcast, please contact me at Stevie B. Me Production Studio at 910-491-6405 or send your emails to my new email address, whatsteve1009 at yahoo.com. Due to the coronavirus pandemic outbreak, I will not be making any public announcements regarding public assemblies until further notice, but I will be making making announcements regarding the events and activities that are happening on social media. On Thursday at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time, 9 p.m. Central Standard Time, and 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, there will be a nationwide gospel call that's sponsored by the Church of Christ in Highland Heights in Houston, Texas, and the telephone number is 857-216-6700, and the access code is 328497. This is a nationwide outreach to those who are not members of the Churches of Christ. And the speakers will present a basic salvation message for them to learn what they must do in order to be saved, as well as information about the Churches of Christ. It's also intended to edify and strengthen the faith of those who are Christians. On Tuesday evening at 6.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, the Delcrest Church of Christ from San Antonio, Texas presents the Women's Virtual Bible Class and that class will be held on www.zoom.com and the class ID number is 821 And on a daily basis there will be a Women's Prayer there will be a women's prayer by the Ladies in Christ Prayer Line being hosted by the Church of Christ from Lafayette, Louisiana. And the telephone number to this prayer line is 605-472-5203. And access code is five one four eight five nine. This will be held daily at 6 a.m. Central Standard Time. My co-host, Steve Coulter here on the Gospel Light Radio Show. He has a new book entitled God, Grace, and You," And you can order this book from the 21st Century Christian Catalog. There will be a spring-summer series every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. The preacher's panel discussion is going minister Michael Crusoe, as he moderates a series of discussions featuring seasoned preachers in our Brotherhood of the Churches of Christ. And the topic of the discussion is expanding the role of women in Christian worship, a word from the Lord. And coming this fall, I have a new show under Stevie B's new production. That will be the Kelly Fletcher Show. And this show will be a part of the broadcast that airs here on Tuesday evening here on Blog Talk Radio. The show entitled What a Word from the Lord Radio Show. And the Kelly Fletcher Show will air every fourth Tuesday of the month. This show will kick off on August the 24th. And just a program reminder, Stevie B. New Productions, presents, we're airing live shows here on Blog Talk Radio. You can give me a call to the live show at 713-955-0508 or type in your search bar at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Gospel Light Radio Show. On Tuesday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time, I'll be hosting a live show, What a Word from the Lord Radio Show. And each week on this broadcast, I will guest speaker from the Brotherhood of the Churches of Christ who will be presenting a message from the Word of God. Also, we have the Community Corner segment. That segment designed for small business owners and entrepreneurs who have products and services. For our communities also have three co-hosts on that show Luke Giver, he's the evangelist for the Oakwood Park Church of Christ There in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania And my newest co-host, Shauna Ode She's with the Great Way Church of Christ There in Nashville, Tennessee And she has a ministry, the Mid-Tennessee Singles Ministry And that ministry will air every third Tuesday of the month And also my newest co-host, Isa Mullins He serves with the Helen Street Church of Christ Here in Fayetteville, North Carolina Also, on Thursday evening, I'll be hosting the live show, the Gospel Light Radio Show. That show will air from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. And I have eight co-hosts on this show who will be presenting messages from the Word of God. And each week, I have two of my co-hosts on the air with me. I'll also be taking a question from my social media platform on Facebook, shout it out, that I'll be posing uh, to my co-hosts on this live show. And then on Friday night, at our new time, from 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 8 to 10 p.m. Central Standard Time, I'll be hosting a live show, Stevie D, Acapella Gospel Music Blast radio show, and on this broadcast, I'm playing some of the world's greatest acapella gospel music artists, The Sweet Sounds of voices. We also have the Story Glory segment, where we're interviewing the artists that we're playing on this broadcast, and my next scheduled interview will be on September 3rd, I'll be interviewing. Chef Brian Brown from Atlanta, Georgia. On next Friday night I'll be doing the top twenty countdown show for the month of August. And on uh, August the twenty third, I'll be interviewing Urban C. Jackson from Wesley Temple, Florida. He'll be debuting some new music on that broadcast as well. If you have if you cannot catch any of these live shows, where are you getting your favorite podcast from? There's just a variety of musical platforms that you can use to pull up these on an episode. Just type in your search bar, TVB Media Production, and you'll see all of the shows that we're producing here on a weekly basis. And some of the major uh, platforms I always like to announce, the most popular ones are Spotify, Apple iTunes, uh, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, YouTube, just to name a few. And I also have a new sponsorship manager. If you'd like to be a sponsor for any of these radio shows, just contact my sponsorship manager. Her name is Michelle Marco from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Her number is 954 4705 I'd like to give a shout out to all of my sponsors. We certainly appreciate all those who have been supporting these broadcasts. Uh, Sharon Norwood, she's from Chicago, Illinois. Bethesda Memorial Friendly Director Crematory Services from DeSoto, Texas. Stanley Phillips from Little Rock, Arkansas. Cheryl Mara from Charlotte, North Carolina. Yvonne Blazing cracker from Nashville, Tennessee. Melvin Jackson from High Point, North Carolina. And Marquise Hallman from Charlotte, North Carolina. Stephanie Booker-Wilson from Greensboro, North Carolina. Diversified Fantasy Network, LLC from Dallas, Texas. Owned Martha and Charlotte Carroll. And Ordained Faith Publishing from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The three... So, Stevie B's media production is is the objective of this broadcast. We want to educate. We want to edify. We want to encourage you in a study of God's Word. And that will conclude our program announcements. Stay tuned to the Gospel Light Radio Show. The shout-out question is coming up next.
2: Stay tuned. You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. Shout It Out Question.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, this is the portion of the broadcast where I have a question from my social media platform called Shout It Out. And we want to pose this question to my co-host. We also want to encourage our listeners to join this group on Facebook and get involved in those biblical discussions. Now, my co-host on the show this evening is Tim Bench. He serves at the Oham Lane Church of Christ there in Ebilene, Texas. He'll be answering our question this evening. Tim, how you doing, my brother?
6: Hello, Stevie.
1: Now, Tim will also be uh, pulling double duty here on the show tonight. He's standing in at the last minute for my other co-host. We certainly appreciate that from him. Now, Tim, here's the question that we have for your consideration. This question comes from an anonymous querist from the state of North Carolina. And the query is the question. Now, the scripture reference that's used for this question is Matthew 27 and verse 25. Let me read that text first. And the text says, then answered the people, then answered all the people and said, his blood be on us and on our children. Now, here's the question. Since the Jews are the ones who had Jesus Christ killed, Would you say that this scripture has been fulfilled? What say you to this question?
6: To answer the question, no, I would not say it's been fulfilled since the Jews were not the ones who had Jesus Christ killed. The Jews were not the ones who killed Jesus. And I want us to look at this in some detail. If we go a little bit later in Matthew chapter 27, going to verses 34 and 35, I want us to read those together. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Those are the verses that serve as the basis for what's known as the blood curse. And the term blood curse is frequently applied to Jewish descendants of this event. And it's been the cause of much anti-Semitism and violent actions towards Jews over the centuries. Jews even today are still often referred to as Christ killers. And it's noteworthy that this specific comment appears nowhere else in the synoptic Gospels. Now, talking about this blood curse, I want us to look at that before we look at who actually killed Jesus. This is an observation from John Chrysostom. Quote, observe here the infatuation of the Jews, their headlong haste and destructive passions will not let them see what they ought to see. And they curse themselves, saying, his blood be upon us, and even entail the curse upon their children. Yet a merciful God did not ratify this sentence, but accepted such of them and of their children as repented, for Paul was one of them and many thousands of those who in Jerusalem believed, end quote. So here's point number one. If this blood curse was to damn all Jews into perpetuity, how did Paul become a Christian? And in fact, Jesus Christ himself was a Jew in the New Testament. From Frank Flynn, in his article, Who Killed Jesus? Quote, the Romans killed Jesus as a political threat as they had killed many other prophets, brigands, rebels during the first century. Josephus, the Jewish historian, recounts many examples in his Jewish war and Jewish antiquities. Had the Jewish authorities been directly involved, Jesus would have been stoned, as Stephen was in Acts chapter 7. Only Roman authorities could authorize crucifixions, and they often did so on a gruesome massive scale, end quote. Jesus was killed by the Romans. From Reza Aslan, this is a quote that's taken from the Daily Beast back on November fifth, two 2013, quote, the method of execution settles the question once and for all. Crucifixion was a strictly Roman punishment for crimes against the state, end quote. Again from Reza Aslan in his book Zealot. This is on page one hundred sixty nine. Quote, if the high priest did in fact question Jesus about his messianic ambitions, and if Jesus' answer did signify blasphemy, then the Torah could not be clearer about the punishment. Leviticus 2416, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be surely put to death, the congregation shall stone him to death. This is the punishment inflicted upon Stephen for his blasphemy when he calls Jesus the Son of God, Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 60. Stephen is not transferred to Roman authorities to answer for his crime. He is stoned to death on the spot. Under the Roman imperium, the Jews did not have the authority to execute criminals, though that did not stop them from later killing Stephen. One cannot lose sight of this fundamental fact: Jesus is not stoned to death by the Jews for blasphemy; he is crucified by Rome for sedition. End quote. And again, we're using Scripture to prove this. And I want everybody listening to look, if you have your Bibles handy, to look at Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, again, which very clearly specifies the punishments for blasphemy. And we know what happened to Stephen. That was applied to Stephen. It was not applied to Jesus, which proves that the Jews were not behind the death of Jesus. From Mark Allen Powell, quote, Jesus was crucified as a Jewish victim of Roman violence. On this, all written authorities agree. A Gentile Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, condemned him to death and had him tortured and executed by Gentile Roman soldiers, Jesus was indeed one of thousands of Jews crucified by the Romans, end quote. From John Meacham in Newsweek, February 15, 2004, quote, In the age of Roman domination, only Rome crucified. The crime was sedition, not blasphemy, a civil crime, not a religious one. The two men who were killed along with Jesus are identified in some translations as thieves, but the word can also mean insurgents, supporting the idea that crucifixion was a political weapon used to send a message to those still living, beware of revolution or riot or Rome will do this to you too. The two earliest and most reliable extra-biblical references to Jesus, those of the historians Josephus and Tacitus, say that Jesus was executed by Pilate, end quote. And a little bit of additional context here, Stevie, uh, from earlier in Matthew chapter 27, going back to verse 20, we read, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd. So the mob at Jesus' trial was comprised of Jews gathered in Jerusalem for Passover, but they were specifically incited by religious leaders who had rejected Jesus years earlier, Matthew chapter 12, verse 14. So the mob's ringleaders bear the most responsibility, as does Pilate, who presided over this entire travesty. The mob's self-indictment was spoken of where they say by some Jews, not all of them. Again, Jesus was a Jew, as were all of his disciples, and they certainly did not call a curse down upon themselves. I want to share one more citation. This is from John Townsend in the Gospel of John and the Jews, the story of a religious divorce, quote, In the Roman trial, all the Gospels agree that Jesus was charged with claiming to be the king of the Jews, and that Jewish pressure forced the governor to condemn Jesus, who he believed to be innocent. In the Synoptic Gospels, however, it is the Jewish crowd that cries out against Jesus, Mark 15, 11 through 15, while in John... The Jewish presence at the trial is limited to the chief priests and their office their officers, John 19.6. Even though John regularly refers to those demanding Jesus' death as the Jews in 1831, 1838, 19, verse 7, 19, verse 12, 19, verse 14, etc., the context makes it clear that these Jews mentioned were merely the priestly designation nineteen verse six and nineteen verse fifteen certainly john's account of the Roman trial contains nothing so anti jewish as matthew twenty seven twenty five according to which the Jewish people demand that responsibility for Jesus' death fall upon them and their children. still, the fact that jesus that John frequently chose to identify the priestly delegation as the Jews would lead the casual reader to believe that it was the Jewish people who forced the crucifixion, end quote. And we know that's not accurate. In conclusion, again, the Jews may have been complicit with the the killing of Jesus. For the most part, they certainly would have been happy about Jesus dying and being taken out of the loop, but they did not have the legal power to put him to death as the Roman authorities did. And again, even the method used to kill Jesus, which was crucifixion, absolutely indicates that it was Rome which was the culprit. If the Jews had killed Jesus, it would have been done in the manner described in Leviticus 24, verse 16, which was how Stephen was killed.
1: Hey, Tim, do you suppose that because uh, the Jews killed Stephen, why? didn't the romans uh punish them for his death
6: because i think the romans at that point this the the entire emergence of christianity was becoming such a threat they wanted that threat stamped out
7: hmm.
6: they wanted the jesus was viewed as a political threat as a religious threat as a social threat and it was becoming more and more of a concern to the roman empire so I think they probably would not have been happy about Jesus, about Stephen being killed, but they weren't going to punish anyone either because one way or another, they wanted this threat to be eliminated. Hey,
1: good job on that uh, question, man. Appreciate it. You bet. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Tim will be uh, giving a lesson after our break as well. He's pulling double duty on the broadcast this evening. Stay tuned for the Gospel of Light radio show. Shout it
2: out! Question. You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show.
3: God's hand is amazing. amazing. Wipe your weeping
2: listening to the gospel light radio show give your attention to the proclamation of the gospel of jesus christ
1: now my co-host tim bench and his subject the pharisee and the tax collector
6: good evening again this is tim bench as stevie mentioned and it is my pleasure to be with you this evening we are certainly glad for all of our listeners wherever you may be joining us from around the United States, and likewise around the globe. As Stevie mentioned, the title of my segment, my second segment tonight, will be The Pharisee and the Tax Collector, and if you have your Bibles handy, go ahead and get those out. We're going to be reading tonight from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, chapters, or excuse me, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, starting in verse 9. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. I want to start tonight with a quote from Abbott's New Testament commentary about the pharisees that's a term that we often hear used in pejorative terms quote the pharisees were a very proud and self-complacent class of men who had a high reputation for sanctity the publicans or tax gatherers on the other hand were despised end quote so our story features one pharisee and one publican we read of these two men And it's interesting to note, again, the term publican means a tax collector. The Pharisee would have been largely viewed as a moral pillar by most of the masses, yet this parable demonstrates just the opposite. This was a Pharisee who was anything but moral. Likewise, a publican or a tax collector was largely viewed with disdain and loathing in the first century and for good reason, and yet the publican exhibits far more of a Christian attitude and far more humility than the more respectable Pharisee. So let's look first at the tax collector. This is from BibleStudyTools.com, the term publican, one who formed the taxes, e.g. Zacchaeus, Luke 19:2, to be levied from a town or district and thus undertook to pay to the supreme government a certain amount. In order to collect the taxes, the publicans employed subordinates who, for their own ends, were often guilty of extortion. In New Testament times, these taxes were paid to the Romans, and hence were regarded by the Jews as a very heavy burden. And hence, also the collectors of taxes, who were frequently Jews, were hated and were usually spoken of in very poor terms. Jesus himself was accused of being a friend of publicans and sinners in Luke chapter 7, verse 34. The Greek term here is interesting, and this is pronounced element. Strong's Concordance, it is entry number 5057, simply defined as a collector of taxes. If we look at Helps Word Studies, it referred to the toll house where the Romans collected taxes from the public. And this appears uh, 21 times separately throughout the New Testament. This is from William Barclay in The Master's Men, quote, There was a purchase tax on all that was bought and sold. There was bridge money to be paid when a bridge was crossed, road money to be paid when main roads were used, harbor dues to be paid when a harbor was entered, market money to be paid when a market was used, town dues to be paid when the traveler entered a walled town. If a man was traveling on a road, he might have to pay a tax for using the road, a tax on his cart, on its wheels, on its axle, and on the beast which even drew the cart. There was a tax on crossing rivers, on ships, on the use of harbor quays, on dams. There were certain licenses which had to be paid for engaging in certain trades, end quote. And from Wayne Jackson in The Christian Courier, in his article, What is a Publican in the New Testament? Quote, the publicans were so distrusted that they were prohibited from testifying in a court of law. Banks disdained their business, and even their charitable gifts generally were refused. End quote. So this gives us some background on the term Pharisee and publican. And it's interesting, even Jesus himself uses the term publican in the harshest possible context. For example, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, we read, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established, And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. So again, Jesus was conveying here the status of this group in the first century. Again, Jesus from Matthew chapter 5, verses 46 and 47. For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans do the same. And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? And from Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus, again, had many... Uh, terms, many instances where he uses this term publican in a derogatory way, but yet Matthew, the publican, the tax collector, was ultimately chosen as one of his apostles. We see that in Matthew 9, verse 9, Mark chapter 2, verse 14, and Luke chapter 5, verse 27. The publicans were, as we have stated, loathed. They were detested. They were despised much like we might view the tax collectors of the IRS now. But it is the publican in this parable who exhibits humility. It is the publican in this parable who exhibits a contrite heart. It is the publican in this parable who has no pretense or illusion of his own morality. And he certainly does not brag on himself or view himself as superior to others, quite opposite, actually. The publican refers to himself with eyes to the ground as a sinner, in verse 13, in need of mercy from God. So we have a publican, the most vile possible character imaginable in the New Testament, who was yet humble and repentant. Question arises, what about this Pharisee? In fact, what was a Pharisee? What does that term actually mean? According to Merriam-Webster, Pharisee, a member of a Jewish sect of the intertestinal period noted for strict observance of rites and ceremonies of the written law and for insistence on the validity of their own oral traditions concerning the law. From the King James uh, Dictionary, Pharisee, one of a sect among the Jews whose religion consisted in a strict observance of rites and ceremonies and of the traditions of the elders and whose pretended holiness led them to separate themselves as a sect, considering themselves as more righteous than other Jews. So, interesting background, which certainly applies here. This is a quotation from Mike Willis from the Pharisees with Truth Magazine. Quote, The word Pharisee appears 100 times in 95 verses in the New Testament. Here are some things said about them in the Scriptures. John the Baptist described them as a generation of vipers in Matthew 3, verse 7. They were charged with hypocrisy in Matthew 23, with reference to refusing to enter the kingdom and preventing those who wished to do so. Also, devouring widows' houses while making long prayers, Matthew 23, verse 14. Compassing land and sea to make one proselyte who, when converted, is two for, twofold more a child of hell than before, according to Matthew 23, verse 15. Tithing meant, but leaving undone the weightier matters of the law, Matthew 23, verse 23, and Luke 11:42. 42. Cleansing the outside of the cup, but not the inside of the cup, Matthew 23, verse 25, and Luke 11:39. 39 being like whited sepulchers that are beautiful on the outside but rotten on the inside, Matthew 27, piously building tombs of prophets, but being guilty of the very things that killed them, Matthew 23, verse 29. They loved places of preeminence, Luke eleven forty-three. They were self-righteous, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. They were separatists. They separated themselves not only from the Gentiles but also from the common people who did not observe the law with the same ritual purity as they did Matthew nine verse eleven and mark two verse sixteen. The Pharisees were committed to observing the oral traditions relating to fasting, matthew nine fourteen mark two eighteen and luke five thirty three observing the Sabbath. Matthew chapter 12, verse 2, Mark chapter 2, verse 24, and Luke chapter 6, verse 2, the washing of one's hands, Matthew 15, verses 1 through 9, etc. They accepted looser views on divorce and remarriage, Matthew 19, verse 3, end quote. In modern times, those who are conservative, and I I use that uh, with quotation marks around it, in their views on the Bible are often accused of of being a Pharisee when in fact this is not what the word Pharisee even meant according to the New Jewish Encyclopedia "Quote:
0: the Pharisees were separatists in that they emphasized observance as ritual practice as ritual purity and timing which kept them apart from the left observance they were founders encouraging liberal interpretations of the scriptures and the adaptation of the blog to change the changes of the blood. This contrasts the success of the three years law, So again, when someone refers to or to a legalist or lack of a better word of practice, that's correct, correct? This is from background of early Christianity from Dr. Edward First, in the first verse. Quote, one of two courses follows with regard to the law. The traditional code, right, is, is intro- or in accordance or experience left outside so story, tenuous, uh, the story is new as a the Pharisees is about the moreover. The itself, applications of the law and had to the for it.
1: Tim, your audio is going out.
6: I'm so sorry, Stevie. Can you hear me?
1: Yeah, we lost you for the last five minutes. You, you were kind of silent on us.
6: We're talking about the Pharisees, and I'm so sorry about the, the technical glitches. I'm on my cell phone. It's interesting to note that the Pharisees, who so often are viewed as enemies of the apostles and Jesus in the 21st century, were described in good terms with some regularity in the 1st century. For example, it was a Pharisee who warned Jesus that his life was in danger according to Luke 13, verse 31. It was a Pharisee who helped bury Jesus after the execution, according to John 19, verses 39 and 40. And it was a Pharisee who saved the lives of the disciples after Jesus had ascended into heaven, according to Acts chapter 5, verse 34. Yet again, in this parable, the Pharisee is anything but good or moral or humble or even repentant of his sin. He's filled with his own ego. He brags in his prayers about his deeds. We see that in verse 12. And he certainly holds himself to be morally superior to other men in verse 11. His vanity actually is astounding. We have one man, a publican, who is mocked and hated by the communities around him, but who is yet contrite and humble. And we have a liberal and educated Pharisee whose massive ego is matched only by his grandiose self-image. Again, both men prayed to God, according to verse 10, but yet only one of their prayers was acceptable, and only one of the men was justified, according to verse 14. From the James Burton Kaufman Commentary, quote, The Pharisee belonged to the aristocracy of his time, a member of the ruling class, and both his virtues and his sins were those of the class to which he belonged. His good points were many. He was not an adulterer, nor an extortioner, nor unjust. He avoided the outward gross sins into which many may fall. On the positive side, he was outwardly religious, as he should have been, keeping all the ceremonies of the law and paying tithes, even beyond that which the law required, and observing a hundred times as many fasts each year as God had commanded. He was superior to many of his own times and also of our own times. His failure was a lack of humility, a proud and selfish arrogance having developed with him that made him unsympathetic to others. Furthermore, he had fallen into the fatal error of supposing that he had placed God in his debt, that God owed him salvation on the basis of the good deeds that he did and his outward observance of the commandments of the law, end quote. From the Thomas Coke commentary on the Bible, quote, the Pharisee, having a very high opinion of his own sanctity, would not mingle with the crowd of worshipers in the temple, lest he should have been defiled by them, Isaiah 65, verse 5. But he stood on a place by himself alone. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed these things. He spoke them aloud in the hearing of those who were in the temple at their devotions. He showed his pride and self-conceit by standing as near the sanctuary, the place of the divine habitation as he could, that the priest might hear him also, and that he might be at as great a distance as possible from the profane publican, who, he observed, was praying at the same time with himself. The circumstance of his standing near the sanctuary is not indeed directly mentioned, but it is implied in that which is told of the publican, namely that he stood afar off. Here, therefore, the Pharisee prayed, whose thanksgiving savored of the rankest pride being a praising of himself rather than God, and such a praising of himself as implied the highest contempt of others, and particularly of his fellow worshiper. For he did not simply thank God that he was possessed of this or that virtue, but truly that he was not like other men, and particularly like the publican who was then addressing God. Moreover, he took care to do himself all manner of honor, By an exact detail of the sins to which other men, particularly the publicans, were prone, from which, in his own opinion, he was perfectly free, and of the duties which they neglected, but which he failed not to perform, even as this publican expresses a kind of contemptuous pointing at him as if it were with the finger, end quote. And again, let's keep in mind the verse which may sum all this up (laughs) from Luke chapter 14, verse 11. Everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. This is the message for each of us tonight, the message for each of us to consider wherever we may be located, and a message we need to think about within our own hearts. How do we view ourselves? Are we humble? Are we contrite? Do we view ourselves as worthy of God's favor due to our own actions or deeds? Do we think that we're good enough that we can earn our way into heaven? Do we consider God to be somehow? Do we look down our noses in disdain at others who we feel are morally inferior to us in some way? And I think all of us have probably been guilty of that at some point in our lives, and probably a lot of us have seen that within our own churches, and with other Christians. Do we recognize that we are sinners, separated from God by our own failings and our own misdeeds? Romans chapter 3, verse 23, tells us in no uncertain terms that all of us have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God, with no exceptions. That means that each and every one of us tonight has sinned and stumbled and fallen short and has disappointed God. And by definition, we have no moral superiority o- over another person. None of us are justified in looking down our noses in haughty indignation at another person. So the question and tonight, do we pray as the publican prayed or do we pray as the Pharisee prayed? Our own ego and our own vanity is in and of itself a sin and can therefore separate us from God just as surely and just as quickly as any other sin that we can commit. I want us to think about that this evening, and I want to share a quick citation. This is from the Abilene Christian College Lectures back in 1958, a presentation by Eldridge Lynn. On this very topic about the Pharisee and about the publican quote man's works do not merit blessings from God in fact the person who thinks he is good enough to earn salvation from God is misinformed or uninformed and miserably conceited and deceived by his self-righteousness one is reminded of the Pharisee of old who in the guise of thanking God actually congratulated him for having made such a fine servant. However, the publican had nothing good to say about himself and could only sob, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Christ said the publican was justified in God's sight, end quote. So tonight, only you can know if you have exhibited or do exhibit pride and vanity and praise of yourself versus praise of God, as did the Pharisee, or possess a heart of humbleness and modesty, as did this unnamed publican. Perhaps you've caught yourself at times looking upon others with disdain and mockery, and perhaps you've adopted some of that mindset that we see exemplified by the Pharisee. And if you have done that, you're not alone. Most all of us have. I certainly have. Uh, at times in my life, if we're honest, at one time or another, we have probably thought exactly as the Pharisee did. And that is, again, a mindset and an approach to God that we need to be very careful about never adopting as our practice. This concludes the segment tonight. I hope that, again, all the the materials and, and, and uh, presentations that are featured here are always Scriptural and beneficial and again, I apologize deeply for the uh, Troubles with my cell phone. I certainly hope that you were still able to take some meaning from our lesson tonight If anyone would like an extended copy of this lesson uh, That you might have missed out on because of my cell phone difficulties Please message Stevie and message the group and I'll be more than happy to send that to you And We want to thank everyone for joining us this evening God be with you, and have a good night. Thank you.
2: You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. It's not about me. It's
3: not about me. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about them. It's not about them. But it's all about him. But it's all about him. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about, it's about you. It's not about you. It's not about them. It's not about but him. But it's all about him. But it's all about him. Me it's me not about me. me it's not about me, me, me. It's not about you. It's, about you you it's not about me me It's not about them. It's not about them. But it's all about him. But it's all about him. It's not about me. It's not about it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. But it's all about Him. But it's all about Him. We wanna elevate our friends. We want elevate our We want to give you up. We'll you up. We want to give you what is good, we owe it all to You. Oh Lord, we owe it all to You. We Thank you around saying, yes, I should have said, when all alone, if you would focus on the Lord and not on yourself now, it wouldn't have been so bad, Lord, I'm learning to trust in you, if you knew like I knew you would do, you see it was my God that brought you through, so get on your feet, give him the glory, the honor, the praise that he's still, and here's what we're gonna do, we're gonna elevate oh. i you. Thank you.
2: listening to the gospel light radio show
1: ladies and gentlemen i want to thank you for tuning into this radio broadcast and we certainly appreciate those who've been following our radio show on blog talk radio as well as on social media ladies and gentlemen i want to thank my co-host on the broadcast this evening steve cordell for his lesson uh when god says no and also my co-host tim bench he was willing to pull double duty on the broadcast Today and i certainly appreciate his effort on the radio show i have a, a great team here that's working with me with stevie b's media production these gentlemen are serious about their commitment to the cause of christ and it shows when uh we have a last minute cancellation and they're willing to step up and take the place of our uh, other co hosts we certainly appreciate it ladies and gentlemen it is my prayer that the things that were heard on this broadcast have been beneficial to your spiritual lives and that your relationship with the Lord has been strengthened because you're not only tuned in to this radio show, but you've given yourself over to a study of God's word. I'm your host, Stephen R. Butler. I want to say on the same behalf of all of my co-hosts here on the Gospel Light Radio Show, we really do appreciate your love and support for these radio programs. Good night, everybody. God bless you.
2: You're listening to
1: the Gospel Light
2: Radio Show.
3: It's hard down here, Lord. Sometimes it gets rough, so rough, so rough. Sometimes it gets tough for me. Has anybody been lonely? All my young
2: Listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show.
1: You've been listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show, Episode 240.
7: Jesus brought his
3: love came unto his own, but his own did not receive.
5: Have bones, birds have holes, birds have nests, son of man, not a place, a place no to play a game, no home, he was alone,
3: the yeah, he was alone, world. he was alone, he was alone, he was alone,